as sort of an introduction for tonight, I want you to open up your Bibles to James 2. If you brought a Bible with you, go to James chapter 2. And I want us to read verses 14, 14 all the way down to 24. Follow along with me. James writes, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. As righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by by works, and not by faith alone. You know, ever since I I came to the faith some number of years ago, um, the Lord put a burden on my heart personally uh, to keep going back to this very thing that James is communicating here uh, in the passage that I I just read for you. Uh, James here, many of you know this, is he's talking about a type of faith, a type of faith uh, that produces works in a believer's life. True faith. True faith. Look at verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? This entire passage uh, in the book of James is about faith. It's not teaching we're saved by works, right? We're not saved as a result of some effort on our parts. But listen to this. True faith, true faith works. True faith works. I didn't say we're saved by works. I said true faith works. The Lord has placed his burden on my heart to, to, to make this clear to as many people as possible. True faith works. True faith works. So many are persuaded that Christianity is, is a simply one-time decision uh, that demands nothing of your life. Prayer, prayer, right? Walk an aisle, sign a card, and you're good. You're a believer. I think we know that's not true. Being a Christian, as opposed to popular thinking, is hard. It's hard. It's hard and it demands a, a lot from you. 
You guys know that. Or to put it more accurately, it demands everything. Everything. I don't think too many people understand this. I don't. I thought a couple weeks ago, Joe did an amazing job in Matthew 7. Uh, His message was not for the unbeliever. You remember that. He set the context for us so very well. It was for the believer. Uh, Jesus said there in Matthew 7 on the end of that immortal sermon on the mount that the Christian path is narrow. It's narrow. It's hard. Jesus said that the Christian path is it's constricted. You guys remember when Joe said that? It's, it's tight. Many people are not on that path. Jesus said those who find it are few. That doesn't sound easy to me. It doesn't sound easy. The Christian has a faith that works. That's what James is saying here. And the Christian lives a life that is hard. Don't forget that. Our passage for tonight is going to remind us of that. I think you're going to be reminded of that. Tonight we'll be reminded about what a true disciple looks like, a true disciple of Jesus. Tonight we're going to be reminded about what true Christianity looks like. I want to take you to our passage for tonight in Luke 9. Luke's Gospel. And I'm going to start in verse 23. And he, that is Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. I want to pray with you guys. Lord, thank you for this passage. Uh, Father, help us tonight to, to remember what it means to be a Christian, what true discipleship looks like. And Father, um, as, we, as we study this passage, Lord, and, and go out from here, we remember the words of our Lord and what they affect our, our lives um, greatly, Lord. Uh, that would it cause us to, to change? Uh, would it cause us to, uh, to remember all that Christ has done for us and that we're called to give it all up for him? We pray in his name. Amen. This passage that I just read for you, these three verses, if you've been a Christian for any number of years, you've, you've heard before, right? You've heard it preached. You've heard it read. You've memorized it, possibly. You've been exposed to Luke 9. Uh, when I was first being exposed to the gospel by my mentor when I was back in San Diego, um, it was these words by Jesus, these concepts that were missing in my understanding of Christianity I, Deontay, I used to be someone that believed uh, Christianity was an easy thing. I used to believe that Christianity, again, was a one-time decision type thing. I believed that my life didn't really have to change once I came to faith, and this, this was the text that, that rocked my world, rocked my world. Maybe some of you have had a similar experience, an experience where the pages of Scripture 
uh, were opened up to you and your view of Christianity was shattered. An experience where Jesus' words were opened up to you and made clear in your view of what you thought the Christian life was like was done away with. This passage did that for me. It, it tore apart my view of Christianity and gave me God's view. God's view. So much so that anytime I got a chance to go back to it, I, 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 I rushed to it. I rushed to it. The Lord was gracious enough to save me. And once I realized truths like this one here, this one here, echoed by our Lord, I, I had to share it. When I came to MSU, I found myself returning to Jesus' words here again and again and again and again. I remember one time I was getting a haircut from a guy on the team, and I knew that he had a faulty view of Christianity. I knew that I had interactions with him before. He was my teammate. And uh, this is the passage that I literally typed up for him. I printed it on a piece of paper. I cut it out for him, and I told him, you got to read this. I said, you got to read this. This was the passage that when I was given the opportunity to speak at one of the football team's chapel when I was on the team, again, immediately, when I, I was given the opportunity, I made a beeline to Luke 9. I beelined it there. This was the passage that when I, I went back home, I was given the opportunity to speak back at my high school. And uh, again, I was in San Diego, and then I got saved, and then I came back there. A buddy of mine was, was running a Christian kind of organization, and he, he gave me the opportunity to, 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 to share something from the Word of God. Again, I rushed to Luke 9. Luke 9. And just at the beginning of this year, when, when a couple of us, a few of us here at Cross Life, we were out evangelizing on campus, I talked to a guy who couldn't define Christianity for me. I said, what is a Christian? And he was giving me all these ideas of what he thought. And they were all errant. And I told him, he had to go to class. I said, read Luke 9. Read Luke 9. If Luke 9 hasn't made the cut for memory verses in your life, I think you might want to consider adding it to the list. <clears throat> Listen to me, guys. We got to tuck this text away in our hearts. And we got to keep running back to it. Any chance we get. Any chance we get. Unbelievers need to hear what Christ demands for them. The non-Christian. The unregenerate. And the, the believer, the Christian... They need to be reminded of what Christ demands from them, lest they be deceived. Guys, no one's teaching this. <laughs> this text that I just read for you, no one's teaching this. Modern-day Christianity isn't teaching this. Modern-day Christianity, American Christianity, the Christianity that we're immersed in doesn't say that following Jesus will cost you everything. They don't say that following Jesus means that you die to yourself for the sake of Christ. They don't say that being a follower might cost you your very life. Today's Christianity just doesn't tell us those things. Again, I think you know this, but Christ does. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who suffered under the, the hand of Hitler, 
He was martyred. He said this, quote, when Christ calls a man, what? He bids him come and die. He, he bids him come and die. He, he summons him, that man who he wants to follow him. He says, come die. Come die. I want to talk to you first about the marks of true Christianity. The marks of true Christianity. I think we get that in verse 23. Look at it with me. And he said to all, Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There, there have been far too many people that have muddied the water in terms of who a Christian is and what a Christian looked like, and it's, it's not that complicated to understand. Jesus here in verse 23 simply gives three characteristics, three marks of, true, of a true Christian. Jesus gives three marks, three characteristics of a true disciple. We got to get this, don't we? At the beginning of verse 23, look at it again. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, when he says that, he's saying, if anyone would be my disciple, if anyone would be my follower, let him do this. I don't think it gets much simpler than this. <laughs> if anyone would be a Christ follower or a Christian, then here are the, requ the requirements for them laid out, clear and cut. Anytime I got a chance, Luke 9, it's clear and cut. These are the marks of, of true Christianity. That's what I titled the, the message for tonight. And the first mark we see is a denial of self. It's a denial of self at the beginning of verse 23. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, a Christ follower, let him deny himself. This word for deny here in verse 23 means to disregard one's own interest. To prove to yourself that your own interests, listen to this, are false and wrong, erroneous. This is the person who deliberately chooses to act entirely unlike his natural self or her natural self. This is the person that, this person that denies self, they've resolved in their hearts that the way they're living, the way they're doing things, it's no longer worthy of pursuit. If someone doesn't deny self, they're not a Christian. If there's a person who professes to be a Christian and they don't disregard their own interests, then it's safe to say that that person is not a believer. Jesus doesn't say this is optional, does he? If anyone, he says, look at it again, would come after me, let him do this. It's a non-negotiable. If you want to be a Christian, do away with the way you naturally think about things. If you want to be a Christian, do away with the things that you are naturally living for. This is a brushing aside of one's entire life before Christ. Your entire life before Christ, if you wish to be a disciple of Jesus, it has to be forgotten, guys. It has to be forgotten. And this isn't talking about some, some form of asceticism, some extreme form of abstinence from any and all things. It's talking about a forgetting again and a denying of one's own interest, one's own desires, one's own dreams, 
all that doesn't align with God's truth. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Jesus, just before saying these words here in Luke 9, had just told one of his disciples, one of his disciples, that they were acting in total contrast to this principle here, the denying of self. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. I'm taking you there to a more extensive account. Matthew's gospel um, is more exhaustive in terms of this situation with one of Jesus' disciples failing to apply this, this principle to his life. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and he rebuked him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned around and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the, on the things of man. This is what it looks like, guys, to not deny self. Peter, and I'm sure the other disciples as well, were for, they were all focused on earthly things. Earthly things. Jesus goes so far as to tell Peter that his thinking and that his actions were, listen to this, they were satanic. Jesus had come to die. He had come to do that which the Father had commissioned him to do, but rather than keeping in mind God's plan of redemption, Peter, and I'm sure the other disciples, had, they had their mind set on what they wanted. What they wanted. Jesus dying on the cross when he, when he told them this, they thought this was absurd. This wasn't going to further their plans. This wasn't going to further Peter's plans. And so what does he do? He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He rebukes him. And Jesus turns around and he rebukes him right back. He returns the favor. Peter was not denying self. Peter was not disregarding his own interests. He was thinking worldly, worldly. Look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of, of man, worldly, satanic. He was acting as a mouthpiece for Satan. He was holding tightly to his own interest here. But look at the following verse. This, this is what comes right after. Right after. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. He says, let him deny himself. Many believe that coming to Christ means health, wealth, and prosperity. Some say that coming to Christ means your best life now, right? They say that coming to Christ means that you, you get to advance your own kingdom. In today's Christianity, there exist these, these spiritual gurus, these, these spiritual therapists who tell people, come to Christ, come to Jesus, have all your life's problems solved. There are these people who treat Jesus as some type of feel-good genie whose very purpose is to meet their needs. Are you one of those? There are people who treat Jesus as if he was some created being for them. 
That's not Christianity. Jesus doesn't exist to fulfill our desires and wants. That's backwards thinking. He doesn't, he doesn't exist to fulfill what's on our agenda. That's not Christianity. Biblical Christianity calls for a denial of self, a putting off of that which is ungodly. That which doesn't align to God's truth. Put it off. A doing away with fleshly living. Some cross-references. Isaiah 55, 6. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. God's way forsake? No, your way. Your way. Paul says in Galatians twice, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. They've crucified the flesh. Christians, again, in Colossians 3, Paul says, consider their mortal bodies dead to sin. Their old life, what does he say? He calls it old man, old. Turn to Titus chapter 2. A denial of self. A denial of self. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce. Some of your versions say deny. Deny ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Godly lives. Godly lives. Christianity isn't about doing what you want to do. It's about renouncing your own ways. Saving faith isn't characterized by dwelling in your sin and living in it. Licentiousness. It's characterized by a denying of one's self. The true Christian is marked out by his renouncing of their own ways. That's what the grace of God does. It doesn't teach us to say yea to sin, but no to sin. I want to show you an example. Go to Philippians. Flip a few books to the left. Philippians. What does it look like to deny self? You guys know where I'm going. Paul. He's a great example of this. Philippians 3, in verse 4, he says, Though I myself has, have reason for confidence in the flesh, right? There were the Judaizers, they were influencing negatively, that is, the Philippians. They had a lot of confidence in their flesh and their works. And Paul just gives this laundry list of reasons why he could boast. Why he could boast. He continues in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Here it comes, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There's his resume. I can boast. If you want to look at it from a fleshly point of view. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. My resume before Christ, it doesn't matter. My life before Christ, it doesn't matter. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Dung, excrement, in order that I may gain Christ. In order that I may gain Christ. He, he, he put it all away. This is a disregarding of one's old life. He says it's worth nothing. It's worth nothing. It's no good. No good. A forgetting it. A doing away with it. Saying it's rubbish. I don't want it. It's filth. I want to give you another example. The perfect example. Go to Luke 22. Luke 22. Verse 41, Jesus is at the end of his life. Here, right? The brink of death. The garden of Gethsemane. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That was the cup of God's wrath, he's saying. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. Here we get a glimpse of Jesus' humanity. He fully realized what he's about to step into. Uh, The Father's wrath. And, And he asks God, the Father, if there be any other way, he says, if there be any other way about it, could that happen? Could that happen? But his life was characterized by a denial of self. Look at it again in verse 42. If, if you are willing, he says, And then at the end, nevertheless, not my will, not my will, but yours, but yours. A denial of self, if it be your will, God. He was concerned, here's a denial of self. He was concerned about the interest of another, not his own, not his own. In in his humanity, The Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father. He's a perfect example of what it means to deny self. Denial of self says this, not my will, but yours. If you are someone that has never given up anything for the sake of Christ, hear me out, you're not a Christian. If you've never sacrificed anything for the sake of Christ, You're not a Christian. If you haven't given up your godly habits for the sake of Christ, hear me, there's a good chance you don't possess saving faith. If you haven't given up your ungodly relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, I want to bring it in a little bit, there's a good chance you're not a believer. If you haven't given up your ungodly music that you used to listen to before coming to Christ, there's a good chance you're not a believer. If you are still speaking the same ungodly words that you spoke before your profession of faith, there's a good chance you're not a Christian. 
if you're still watching the same ungodly stuff you watched before coming to faith, on your computer, on your TV, there's a good chance you don't fit the bill of Luke 9. You don't fit the bill. If you're still pursuing, listen to this, a career with the same ungodly desire that you possessed, a career, same ungodly desire before coming to Christ, there's a good chance you don't fit the bill. Surprised at how many people profess to have saving faith. Yet they still do the same things without even thinking. Listen to, listen to me. Without even thinking of what the word of God has to say about that issue. It's not that we're perfect in obeying what Christ has to say, right? We all know that. We all know that. But it's the fact that some people, some of you in here, you don't even care. You don't even care. They don't ever take the time to look at what the Bible says about certain issues. Should we suppose that that person is a true believer? I want to expose someone tonight. No way. No way. Jesus lays out the first first mark of a true Christianity In the beginning of verse 23, back in Luke 9, why don't you go back there? And it requires a denial of self. A denial of self. Secondly, a mark of true Christianity, a true Christian's life is a taking up of one's cross. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. When Jesus said this to his disciples, guys, they would have been shocked. The cross symbolized in the first century death, shame. Uh, Taking up one cross also signifies suffering. The crucifixion entailed lots of suffering. The, The cross was an instrument of crucifixion, right? It it was one of the Romans' forms of execution. They adopted it by the Phoenicians. The criminals who were sentenced to death by the cross were the vilest of criminals, vilest. Ruthless individuals. One commentator said this about the cross, that it was a well-known instrument in Jesus' day of most cruel and disgraceful punishment. He continues, to it were affixed the guiltiest criminals, particularly the basest slaves, robbers, and authors of insurrections. Close quote. And those vile criminals who would be sentenced to the cross would be scourged and then hanged left to suffocate, to death, or bleed to death. The the crucifixion entailed immense suffering. And and this is what was going on through the disciples' mind when Jesus had said this. This was a humiliating way to die. And Jesus calls his followers his disciples. True Christianity, he says, bear up shame. Bear up suffering. Jesus calls his disciples to bear up humiliation, bear up death. It was enough for the disciples that Jesus had told them that that he was going to (laughs) die. That was enough. But he doesn't stop there. You remember Luke 16 gives a more extensive account. 
He didn't just stop there. He didn't just say, listen, I'm going to die. It was the first time he told his disciple that. He says, listen, you're going to die too. No, no, no. I'm not just going to (laughs) die. My followers, you're following suit. You're following suit. This is a calling for a person to bear up their cross. This is... This is a calling for a person to surrender it all, to give up everything and be willing to die to follow Jesus. This wasn't the first time Jesus told his disciples this. It wasn't the last. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, chronologically speaking, this was the first time we have recorded for us Jesus calling his disciples to take up their cross Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me first time whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it will find it here jesus bids his followers come and die come die He summons those who will follow in his footsteps to give up everything. He says, if you love your father, (laughs) if you love your immediate family more than me, you're not worthy. You're not worthy. In verse 38, look at it again. And whoever does not take up his cross, here it is, and follow me, what does he say? You're not worthy. You're not worthy. I think people need to hear this today. What you want, you're not worthy. You're not worthy. It's a hard saying. Not only does Jesus call for the believer to come bear shame and suffering and death by telling them to take up their cross, he tells them not to do it once, but what what does he say back in Luke 9? Daily. Daily. This isn't a one-time thing. That's why I want to challenge Christians in the room. This isn't a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. Daily. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul told the church in Corinth, he said, I die every day. I die every day. That is that he risked his life daily for the sake of the gospel every day. Every day. Going back to Joe's message a few weeks ago, he did a phenomenal job. The Christian path is narrow, guys. It's constricted. There aren't too many skipping down this hard Christian path. It sort of makes sense in light of what the Lord demands. You might be wondering now, how do I know if I'm taking up my cross? How do I know whether or not I've surrendered at all? It's a question I asked myself when I came to this text. I found this neat list of questions that might help you sort through that. This series of questions, the series is titled, Are You Willing to Follow Jesus If? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienation from your family? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it it means abandonment from your family? 
Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your closest friends? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your boyfriend or girlfriend? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means the loss of your reputation? If it meant the loss of your popularity? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your high-paying job? Because you don't want to compromise your integrity. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means being mocked and laughed at by people in your classrooms at MSU, at NBC? People in your classrooms on campus, people in your close friend groups. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it meant working a low-paying job? If it meant working in a place that wasn't of the highest esteem, didn't have the greatest respect? Are you willing to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth? I had to ask myself these questions as I worked through this text. Are you willing to follow Jesus anywhere? Anywhere. I want to take a little break from from these questions. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he, he, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, here it is. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you, you go. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another dis- of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus' point in this passage was that following me, it's the same as we've been looking at already, will cost you everything. It's going to cost you your comfort. The first guy was worried here in this text. He was worried about a home. Jesus exposed that. Place to lay his head. The second guy... <laughs> who says, hey, let me go bury my father first. He was worried about money. Let me, let me, let me go bury my father and, and receive my inheritance. That's what he was saying. Jesus says, following me forfeits a lavish lifestyle. You don't get that. You, you don't get that. Here's a call for true discipleship. True discipleship. Let me continue. Are, are you willing to follow Christ if it meant losing everything? Are you willing to follow Christ if it meant looking foolish in the world's eyes? I remember when I was playing ball at MSU and one of the Christian guys on the team told me some of the, he told some of the other players that he didn't normally text women due to certain convictions of his and he was laughed at. The guys on the team thought he was a nut. They, they thought he was weird. Thought he was odd, and they sort of scoffed at him. If that brother was a phony, if he wasn't a true disciple, he would have given up his ground and compromised his convictions before God. But he didn't. He was unshaken. He was willing to take up his cross. Are you willing to look foolish 
for the sake of being radical for sin? A, a guy is having issues with pornography and he's using his phone. Are you willing to give it up? Well, I don't, I, I can't have that phone. <laughs> what? You're not worthy. You're not worthy. That would have been Jesus' response. You're not worthy. I'm afraid there are too many, peop- too many professing Christians who enjoy being liked by certain people so much that they don't want to be as offensive for the sake of Christ. They don't want to speak hard things because they're concerned about how, how their friends are going to view them. They want to be cool. They aren't willing to compromise their coolness. Those type of people aren't fit for the kingdom of God. No place for cool kids. Are you willing to follow Christ if it meant shame? If it meant ridicule? If it meant persecution? Are you willing to follow Christ if it meant losing your very life? If you can't answer yes, to any of those questions, if you can't answer yes to any of the earlier questions that I stated, you're not worthy. If you can't answer yes to any of those questions, you don't fit the bill of Luke 9. It's a hard saying, isn't it? I'm just the messenger. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, Paul has spent three years in Ephesus ministering to the, to the people. He loved them dearly, and he was leaving. Verse 18, he says to the elders, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and in a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. He had ministered there for a while, but it was time to leave. The Spirit was drawing him somewhere else. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. There are a lot of dangers that he's going to face, lots of dangers. Except, he says in verse 23, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. <laughs> Let's stop there. He, he administered in Ephesus for three years. He was leaving and the Holy Spirit had, had, had testified to him. He had promised to Paul, hey, when you go to Jerusalem... Nothing but afflictions. Nothing but afflictions. Nothing but pain and suffering. Death awaits you there, Paul. Death awaits you there. Verse 24. You want to know what it means to take up your cross? Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value. 
He said, I don't count my life of any value. Of any value. Nor as precious to myself. He's talking about his, bu- he's talking about his breath, guys. He says, my life, no value. No value. And look at what he says. If only that I might finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I don't account my life worth anything. How many of us could say that? One person put it this way. Taking up one's cross is simply to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. Only that I may finish. My life? I don't care. I just can't hold back from getting this salvific message out. That's what Paul said. This commentator continues. He says, Taking up one's cross is a willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom for the sake of Christ. I want to quote Bonhoeffer for you again. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. Come die. This is what it means to take up your cross. Let's go back to Luke 9. Try to work quickly here. For the sake of time. First mark, deny yourself. Second mark, take up your cross. Lastly, Jesus says, and follow me. And follow me. Here's the last mark of true Christianity. It's obedience. I don't believe Jesus is saying here what he's saying in the beginning of verse 23. I don't think he's being redundant, though that wouldn't be an issue, right? Um, At the beginning of verse 23, he says, if anyone would come after me, and there he's saying, if anyone would be my disciple, if anyone would be a Christian, let him do this. But here at the end of verse 23, he's communicating that the true disciple is called to obedience. Jesus is talking about obedience when he says, follow me. (laughs) And obviously, obedience is inherent in the other two principles and denying yourself and taking up your cross, but Jesus nonetheless states this. That word at the end of verse 23 that's translated follow, here it means to conform your life wholly to another's example, to Christ's example, to conform your life wholly. I think it's so interesting that Jesus says these words to his disciples right after he had just revealed to him for the very first time that he was going to die. Jesus said, I'm going to die, and turns around and says, and you're going to die and you're going to die. Look at Luke chapter 6, maybe one page back or a couple pages back. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. This this verse hit me hard when I was was coming to faith, when I was wrestling with the gospel. A brother of mine brought this text to me. Jesus said this, this indicting question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, in verse 46, and you do not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord? And you don't do what I say. Luke 6.46 is, is the end of Luke 9.23 in the form of a question. Why don't you do what I tell you if, if I'm your Lord? Jesus asked. An indicting question. 
If I'm your master, why, don't, why aren't you conforming your life to mine? There are many out there who would suggest that you can truly follow Christ and look nothing like him in your life. <laughs> and I said this a while back at Cross Life when I spoke on the gospel. I, I, I think that that statement, that belief, that's damning. It's damning. It's not true. Those who are not obedient to Christ, those who, who do not do what he says, conform their life wholly to Jesus, follow him, they're not disciples, they're not Christians. There was a guy on the team a while back who asked me, Deontay, he, he had gotten word that another guy who had came to faith had shared his testimony at our athlete Bible study, and he came up to me. This was right before we were, we were leaving in North Dakota. I remember it very vivid in my mind. He said, Deontay, why don't you ask me to share my testimony at athlete Bible study? In which I responded, I said, because you're not a Christian. I wasn't harsh with him. I just wanted him to know. I, 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 truly, do, I, I truly did care for him. We're friends today. I, I just wanted him to know and to see that it wasn't that difficult of an issue. It wasn't that difficult of an issue. It wasn't that I was calling for perfection from this guy's life. We had kind of butted heads because of what I stood for. But, but this guy, there were no signs of him being a Christian. No signs. Jesus simplified the matter for us. He said, those who are my disciples, listen to me. Those who are my disciples, obey me. Blows me away at how much we try to complicate this matter. Let me take you to 1 John 3. I love this text. Let me go to 1 John 3. I just got to, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm mmming up here too because that's a good passage. It doesn't get much simpler than this. And really, I'm not trying to be condescending. But I just think even for my own life, sometimes I can, I can, I can muddy the water with my own thoughts and with my own heart. I'm sure you, you could agree. But it's, it's really this simple. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, Right? That's what we need to be telling people. You know he appeared to take it away, right? And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That is, make a practice of sinning. We're not talking about right perfection. This is someone who's just indulging in sin, right? No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him, that is Jesus, or known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. You see why I'm telling you don't complicate it? John tells us here, don't let people deceive you. Don't let you deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to, to get rid of it. To get rid of it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot. I, 
I took that guy, that same guy, before our, our inter- interaction when I told him he wasn't, I took him to this passage, and I read it for him. I said, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident. Those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil, whoever, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. It's not of God. It's not of God. It's this simple. It's this simple. To sum it up, if someone says that they're a Christian and they don't live a righteous life, what does 1 John tell us to say? You're not. You're not. Follow me, Jesus says. Conform your life wholly to mine. I came to take away sin. Would you dare live in it? Would you dare live in it? Let's go back to Luke 9. We've talked about the marks of true Christianity. I want to talk about the paradox of true Christianity. Verse 24, Jesus continuing, Forever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. This verse is just a continuation of what Jesus has said in verse 23. It's an, it's an elaboration, it's a summation of what he's just said in the previous verse. And you get that really from the conjunction at the beginning of verse 23. He says, for, he's making a connection there. Jesus sums up what he has just said in, in this verse, in this, paradox, in this paradoxical statement. I think it's really a fascinating verse. What does Jesus mean when he says, if you save your life, you will lose it, but if you lose your life, you will save it? That sounds kind of contradicting. And I think there was a similar statement made in John 12, verses 20 through 25, and I won't take you there because I don't have time, and Jesus really clarifies that. He's differing, but he's trying to make a, a, a distinguishment between life here on earth and eternal life, and you get that from John 12, 25. It's clear. He almost says the exact same thing. Jesus is contrasting between one's life here on earth and eternal life. And he's doing this, or he does that in John 12 as well. If someone wishes to save their life here on earth, they will lose it. They will destroy it. In eternity, He's talking about their soul. If you wish to preserve your earthly life, then the kingdom of God is no place for you. There's no place for you. There are too many people who wish to preserve their earthly feelings, their earthly wants, their earthly affections, their earthly dreams, etc. And consequently, they lose their soul. I, I got to take you to this passage. What does it look like to want to save your life in this life? What does it look like? I'm sure you're wondering. Am I that person? Go to Matthew 19, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, really a tragic story. And behold, verse 16 of Matthew 19, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, 
what good deed must I do to, to have eternal life? There's the question, and he said, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Again, it sounds like our text. Come follow me. Come on. Tragic story, verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He wasn't worthy. This is a tragic story, right? He went away sorrowful, the text says. Guys, can I say, please don't, please don't be like this. If you're a Christian, or, or if you're, sorry, a non-Christian in this room, don't do this. Don't be like this. Christ exposed this young ruler's false love of God. He claimed to love God. I'm, I'm good. But when it came down to it, he loved money more than God. I wonder if Christ were to ask you the same question, a question like this, ask me, would you be willing to follow him? Would you be willing to give up that which you were bowing down to for the sake of Christ? Maybe it's money or family or friends or sex or fame or job or you fill in the blank. It wasn't that money was bad, right? We know that. But it's that he loved those things more than God. Can't have idols. Money was his God. I'm afraid that there are some here tonight like this young ruler. They want to save all their earthly wants and dreams and they're unwilling to surrender them to God. That person is not a true Christian if you're in the room. Christians aren't in love with this world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. You want to know what it looks like to love the world? Go to Matthew 19, rich young ruler. It's a bad example, right? I want to show you a good example. What, it, what does it look like? Second half of verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to lose, or if anyone would lose his earthly life, right, he's going to gain eternal life. What does that look like? Go to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going a little long. Forgive me. I got to, I got to finish this. I got to finish this. You got to ask yourself if you're if if you profess to know Christ, is this, is this what your life looks like? What I'm about to read, I had to ask myself this as I'm working through the passage. This text was challenging. It's challenging. Verse 23 of chapter 11. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. I remember, I remember this was the passage I went to when I taught this at chapel some years ago. This is a wonderful example of what it looks like to give up all for Christ's sake, for the sake of saving your soul. This is an example, guys. Listen to me. True saving faith, here it is. Luke 9, 23 through 25, Deontay, are you teaching works? Was Jesus teaching works? No. He was teaching faith. Luke 9, 23 through 25, I could have easily titled this message, True Faith. True Faith. Going back to the beginning of the message, faith that works. Faith that works. Here's faith that works. Faith says that I'm going to die because there has been one who has died for me. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, what does it say? Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He could have had anything he want. Women, booze, whatever. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Look at verse 25. By faith, right, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of this earth. Of this earth. It's a wonderful example of what Jesus says back in Luke 9. This is, this is the paradox of true Christianity, is it not? Losing it all. People might have thought, Moses, you buffoon, you idiot, really? <laughs> all that you want? Women, you can have it all. He wanted to save his soul, though. He wanted to save his soul. Guys, it's so worth it. Amen? So worth it. That's what Jesus concludes with back in Luke 9. Go there as we close. So worth it. The resolve of true Christianity. The resolve of true Christianity. For what, is a, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The true Christian has resolved that the treasures of this world, they're, not worth, they're, they're, they're worth nothing. They're worth nothing in comparison to the state of their soul. The true Christian has answered this question here in verse 25 along with Moses, nothing. You profit nothing. Like Moses, the true believer has resolved that the reproach of Christ is more important than indulging in the fleeting pleasures of this world. Like Moses, the true Christian has resolved that, that their soul is of far more importance than anything this world could offer. Anything. Who cares if you have a nice family and a white picket fence once you graduate from MSU? Who cares if you don't come to Christ and surrender at all? You lose at life. You lose at life. 
Who cares? Who cares if you have lots of money once you graduate from MSU? Sit at the top of some New York skyscraper telling people to bring you coffee all the time. If you don't come to Christ, you lose that life. You lose that life. Who cares if you end up with a huge house, a house on top of the hill, looking out over all of Bozeman, all of the Gallatin Valley, tons of gadgets, going up to the mountain today, got my skis there, my God, got my four-wheeler there, my God. If you don't come to Christ and surrender at all, you, you, you've lost that life. Who cares if you have a dream job that you wanted Ever since you were a small child, if you don't come to Christ and surrender at all, you lose that life. You lose that life. Who cares if you have all the respect from towering intellects at MSU, your professors at NBC, at the Master Seminary? Who cares? If you don't come to Christ and surrender at all, you've lost that life. If you attain all the respect from your friends and families and, and you leave this earth here being known as this Mother Teresa type character, sweetest and nicest individual, good person, morals, oh, great. If you don't come to Christ and surrender at all, you lose that life. You lose that life. For some time now, I've been waiting to speak these words of a well-known Christian martyr of the 1950s. His name was Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott's life, he was martyred in Ecuador by an indigenous tribe there. His life and legacy is a wonderful model of Jesus' words in Luke 9. His, he's a wonderful example of what it means to lose it all so that you might gain it all in the end. I, I can't recall whether or not he was commenting on Jesus' words here in Luke 9, when he penned these simple yet profound words, but whether or not he was, he was commenting on them, these words are still worthy of ending this message. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There was a Christian rapper I was listening to a song one time who stated these words of Jim Elliot in his song, and he, and he said, after he had quoted this, he said, this is the Jim Elliot's rule. The Jim Elliot's rule. And though I don't disagree with that, he was just communicating that Jim Elliot made that statement. As I thought about this, as I thought about Elliot's statement, it would be more accurate to say that that's the Christian rule. It's the Christian's resolve. The Christian has resolved. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. That is, in this life, all the wealth, all the prosperity. He is no fool who gives that up to gain what he cannot lose. That is life with Christ in his kingdom. Eternal life. The Christian has given it all up in order to gain everything. So I want to ask, are you a fool? Are you a fool? I sure hope not. 
Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for clear-cut words about what true Christianity looks like. It's not difficult to understand. To understand, that is. To live, it's another thing. To live, it's another thing. I pray that the believers in the room were reminded of what Christ calls them to. He bids them come and die. Come and die daily. Daily. And for the unbeliever in this room, the non-Christian, I want to pray that that person wouldn't leave here continuing to be a fool. But that they would bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would see, yeah, the Christian life, it's, it's hard. But it's worth it. That he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Lord, I pray for the unbeliever in the room tonight. Help him to see that. Help them to come to Christ. Help them to have true saving faith. Faith that works. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.